Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. I'm going to be reading from Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the sea threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe you will take notice of us, so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. And if we come calm, I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea even grew wilder before them. Then he cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not lay, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'm going to pray for Steve as he comes up. Uh, God, I pray that um, Steve will expand more on these words that you will speak to him and he will open our hearts and we'll receive these words as not just the words of Steve but as your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Moses. Well done for reading so well. Lovely to have you guys here. And as Matthew said, we start a new six-week series called uh, in the book of Jonah called uh, Sent to the City or Called to the City. Just as Jonah was called to the great city of Nineveh many, many years ago, so Christ City Church is called to the great city of Dublin. It's an interesting time to think about the city. We've kind of had two years without lots of things that we associate with the city happening. No shops, no nightlife, no office workers, no hustle and bustle, no crowds, no concerts. In many ways, the city has been shut down, and yet now the city is re-emerging. And so it's worth us thinking, what does it mean to be sent to the city after all the shutdown? 
And cities are complex and they're challenging. They're, they're busy, they're fast, there's lots of new people, there's very multicultural, there's often challenges which we have here of the expense of the city. Um, cities can be energizing, but they can also be draining. Uh, they can be scary. Cities can feel scary. And if after lockdown you're thinking, oh, I've sort of shut in and I've got used to sort of a very small world and re-engaging with the city feels scary. That's normal. Jonah had some of those thoughts. Last, on Friday, I went to watch The Batman, um, was if you have three hours and you don't know what to do with your life. I'm not saying I'd recommend it, but uh, you can go along. But uh, at the heart of The Batman is the question of how are you going to engage with Gotham, a city, a city full of darkness, and the, the theme, the, the film is quite dark, and it has a sense of hopelessness. Is the city redeemable? Is the city just corrupt? Is the city going to topple us? Is there any chance of bringing light into the darkness? It is relentless. It's hard. And the different characters in the story have to work out how they're going to engage with Gotham. And the two main characters, the Batman and his... I won't give you all the details, but uh, they have to work out, are they going to stay and serve? Or are they going to leave? And interestingly, right at the end, the two main characters, one chooses to stay and one chooses to leave the city. Being sent to the city. Cities are complex. Cities are hard. But cities are at the heart of God's plan for humanity. And the main point of today's talk is if we're going to be sent to the city, we first have to realize where we're running from God. You can't be sent to the city until you've understood your own heart and when you're running from God. Often, when we think about the city, we think first and foremost, oh, I just want to choose comfort and ease. And we discover in our hearts that we're already running from God in different ways. When God comes to Jonah midway through the 8th century, Jonah's heart and God's heart were very much at odds. Jonah's heart is very ugly. God's heart is very compassionate. Instead of joining God on his mission towards the city, he couldn't do it. He thought he was one of God's people, but when God called him to the city, he discovered he wasn't really one of God's people. He thought he was following God until God said, go to the city, and he said, oh, I could never do that. And suddenly we realize he's not fully surrendered. It was only when God called him to love the big, pagan, aggressive city of Nineveh that Jonah found out who he was, what he really loved, and where his deepest identity lie. And so we're going to think about it for ourselves. As we think about being called to the city, called to share the gospel, called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Dublin as God's people, what is revealed in us? And the good news is that Jonah's going to find out is that God is very compassionate and very patient, and he wants to pursue us. So let's retell the story. We're going to think about three characters, Jonah, God, and the sailors, and what we can learn. Jonah... Uh, his name means dove, but he's anything like the sign of hope from the story of Noah. Jonah lived in the 8th century BC, and we have one reference to him outside of the book of Jonah, and it's this one. 
from 2 Kings 14, we read, Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. He reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Remember that name, Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath. Heifer. Now, where are we? Two kings, 800 BC. What's going on? Let me retell the story very quickly of God's people. This is how the salvation story goes so far. Around 2000 BC, God calls a man, Abraham, and says, I want to fix this world through calling you and making you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, all nations are going to be blessed. Abraham had some children, Isaac, and Jacob was his grandson, and then uh, Joseph, and, Joseph uh, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel, who had 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph. Now, Joseph didn't possess the greatest tact in the world, and his brother didn't particularly like his lack of tact, so sold him into slavery. And amazingly, even though in a foreign country, in a foreign city, uh, he ends up second in command. And uh, to such an extent that uh, all, of, all of Israel ends up coming to Egypt because of a famine. But then a new pharaoh comes up and God's people, the uh, Abraham's descendants, need rescuing out of slavery from the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh and upsteps Moses to be the deliverer. And God rescues the people through uh, the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai, forms a covenant with them, a marriage moment that God and his people and gives them the Ten Commandments, and then says, now here's my dwelling place, the tabernacle. But I want you, just as Abraham was called to be a blessing to all the nations, I want you to be a light to the nations. You have a role in the world as God's people. Now, after wandering the wilderness for 40 years, they eventually take the promised land that God had given them uh, through Joshua. And uh, after taking the land, there's a horrible book called the Book of Judges, where God's people spiral out of control and, and very much do evil. Um, they start asking for a king, and God gives them a king, and we have uh, three kings. Uh, we have David, we have Solomon, uh, sorry, we have, Sol uh, we have Saul, I get my kings in the right order. Uh, we have Saul, we have David, and we have Solomon. And we have what's called the United Kingdom. They all reign for 40 years, and there's peace and prosperity in the land of uh, Israel most of the time. However, remember I told you to remember the name Jeroboam. After Solomon, the son of Solomon, uh, Rehoboam, wasn't quite as wise as his father. And so the kingdom splits in 922 BC. And you have the north and the south, and the river Liffey in the middle. No. And you have the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. Uh, the ten northern kingdoms are called Samaria. And the first king is called Jeroboam. And that, in the Old Testament, then just gets called Israel. Then you have the southern kingdoms, which still have the capital city, Jerusalem, and they have this Rehoboam the, from the royal line continues, and they're called Judah in the rest of the scriptures. Interestingly, the northern kingdom is exiled in 722 by Assyria, and the southern kingdoms are exiled in 586 by Babylon. What is the capital of Assyria? It's the big bad, pagan city called Nineveh. And the Assyrians were horrible. 
They were aggressive. When they conquered a land, they were, they were savage. They are known in history as a savage nation in the way they handled war and the aftermath of war. And these were the big mega power at the time that Jonah was called, 50 years before the exile, and he was called to go and to preach to that nation. And so we read, is it on the screen? He was the one. Now, but what's going on and what's happening in the king? The king at the time, when, when Jonah is prophesying, says he was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. So there's a little moment of resurgence, political resurgence, boundaries, territory. Israel is growing again. Maybe we can push off Nineveh. Because the word of the Lord had come through Jonah. And Jonah's word had helped the king be politically strong against the pagan megapower. So what do we learn about Jonah here? We learn three things. Firstly, he's a prophet, which is a pretty big title, like Elijah and Elisha and those wonderful people. He had the correct doctrine. He knew what the word word of God said. Secondly, he's called a servant in that passage there, the servant of God. Now, the servant of God is a wonderful title in the Old Testament. We famously have the suffering servant, the one who fulfills God's purposes. And he's experienced God firsthand when he brought his word, Israel prospered. He's encountered God for himself and seen God work in wonderful ways. In other words, Jonah's the good guy. God's servant, God's prophet, God's instrument. His doctrine is correct. He knew God, and yet when God comes to Jonah and says, now go to the pagan city of Nineveh and preach against it so they might repent, he runs. Why? Because he's got to go to his worst enemies and give them a chance to discover God for themselves. It'd be a bit like asking President Zelensky, thank you, of Ukraine, to go to Russia and go to the Kremlin and say, I've been called by God to tell President Putin to repent of his wickedness because the God of heaven wants to have mercy on him. We go, why did Jonah run? Hmm. Now you know. He was probably going to be lynched. Like the president of Ukraine would be if he walked in near the Kremlin. And secondly, why would you want to? Because they're the bad guys. And they just do bad things to us. Everything about this assignment was wrong. And Jonah knows it. And we'll, I'll just put the verse on the screen. We won't read it. Oh, well, there you can see. Uh, you can see Tarshish with the arrow. He's heading off in the opposite direction. You can see Nineveh on the sort of top right there or middle right, and Tarshish is there, and he heads off from Israel into the wrong way. At the end of the, in chapter 4, we learn that this was basically Jonah's problem. He said, I knew you were a compassionate God. I knew you wanted to bring forgiveness. I knew you wanted to love my worst enemy, and I couldn't handle it. So it wasn't just that Jonah had fear to go to Nineveh. It wasn't just that he hated the Ninevites. He hated the thought that God would have compassion and they might turn to him and God would have mercy. He wanted God to get the Assyrians. Jonah wanted God to come down in vengeance and fire and brimstone and smite them. So Jonah says, I'd prefer to die than go to them. He might be a prophet. He might be a servant of God. He might have correct doctrine. God may have used him in, this, in the past, but in this moment, Jonah's love has run out and he can't go and love the city 
because they're the enemy. So why did God do it? Why did God say to Jonah, go? Well, firstly, because God is a God of compassion. That's the main theme of the book of Jonah, in my opinion, that the promises to Abraham to be, to be a blessing to all nations, what, what God has said to Moses, I want you to form this new nation which would be a light to all nations. God has always wanted all the nations and all the people and all types of people to come and repent and be right with him. No one is too far, too bad, too messed up, too broken, too evil for God to have compassion on if they repent. God loves all people, not just his covenant people. God even loves the people that are persecuting his covenant people. There's a thought. He wants them to repent. But that's the first reason. God is a compassionate God. The second reason is because God wants to deal with Jonah's own stubborn, racist, proud heart. And so it will be with us. That God will say, I want you to go and love who you class as the enemy the one that's hard. I want you to go out of your comfort zone. I want to teach you about my heart of compassion. And as you do, you're going to go, yeah, I think God, the compassion of God's a lovely idea, but not for them. Why do they get blessed? Why, why them? Ah, oh, your heart's not so compassionate, is it? You don't really like my heart of compassion. So Jonah is a prophet. He's a servant of God. He's had first-hand experience of God, but he's also a proud racist who won't go and touch certain people or types of people. What do we learn about God? Well, we learn a number of things. The first thing I've already shared, he's a deeply compassionate God. He loves all people, no matter what your background, ethnicity, color, language, upbringing, present, past, future, your moral behavior. He loves all people. He has compassion on all people. Not a certain type of people, not just his covenant people, not just morally correct and those with their doctrine organized. He, he loves all people. And secondly... He pursues selfish, proud people like Jonah. Well, to use the example of the New Testament, he loves Pharisees. In the New Testament Gospels, we read about two types of people that gather around Jesus. You have the sinners. They're the morally corrupt, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those that have made a mess of it. And they seem to gather around Jesus because they understand his heart of compassion for them. And then you have the Pharisees. And they can't stand Jesus. And they have this religious purity, they're morally correct, they have the right doctrine, they, they do and they believe the right things, but they don't like Jesus because he's hanging around with the wrong people, the dirty sinners. Like Jonah. Their proud hearts are revealed. But what we learn about Jesus and what we learn about God is that Jesus is not a Pharisee about Pharisees. He's not a Jonah about Jonah. He really loves all people and you can be proud racist and he'll love you. And you can be a dirty, uh, you know, sinner and he'll love you. And you can be an evil tyrant oppressing other nations and he'll love you. He loves all. Thirdly, we learn about God. He's really in control. Do you notice how he sends a great wind, verse 4? He calms the storm, verse 5. He provides a great fish, verse 17. In chapter 2, he commands the fish to vomit Jonah out. God is really in control over nature. And all, therefore, all things. If, if God is in control over nature, what isn't he in control of? Because nature is the one thing we can't really control. But God can. But he's also in control of salvation. There's an irony. 
Jonah didn't want to go and preach to the dirty pagans over there. And yet on the boat, the dirty pagan sailors are the ones that seem to turn to God. There's an irony. He runs, I don't want to go and save Gentiles, and God saves Gentile sailors, verse 16. I don't want to go anywhere near those dirty, unbelieving pagans from Nineveh, and I go under those, I go close to those dirty, unbelieving sailors. God wants to reach the Gentiles through Jonah, and even when Jonah runs away, what happens? God reaches the Gentiles through Jonah. It's irony. He can't thwart God's purposes and salvation. And when Jonah finally gets to the city of Nineveh, it's an eight-word sermon that brings 120,000 people to repent. And so in chapter 2, we learn that salvation really does come from the Lord. This is a great comfort for us on two levels. As a church, we're called to the city. We're sent to the city. And not everyone in the city is going to automatically respond with, yay, I'm so glad you've come. For God is in charge. We don't need to panic. We don't need to force things. We're following him in what he is doing in Dublin. And we're seeing where he is working in hearts and situations. That's on a kind of local level. But on a global level, does Putin have the final word in this world? Is all that's going on just completely out of control and there's no sense of hope? It's all lost? I mean, there's so much sadness, there's so much evil, there's so much tragedy, but has God lost control of the affairs of the world? No. And it's a much scarier world to consider that God isn't in control right now. There's always hope. And you see, Assyria is no more. Nineveh is no more. Empires, political tyrants, they come and go. But our God lasts. And his people, all the way back from Abraham to Moses, onwards. And we're sat here, and his great everlasting kingdom is being extended. It's a scarier world to consider God not in control. It's a great comfort to us that somehow, even when evil is being done, you cannot thwart God's ultimate purposes. Which leads us to the last thing I want to say about God. You can't escape him. Psalm 139 famously says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, you cannot outrun God. No matter how far you run, no matter how hard you run, no matter how rebellious you get, no matter how ugly and sinful your heart becomes, he's still pursuing you. And you can't outrun him. And you can't hide from him. And we all need to hear that. In our worst moments, we think, oh, God must have given up on me. God must just be washing his hands and going, oh, I just can't be bothered with that person anymore. I've given them so many chances and they're still... No. He's drawing closer the moment you're running away. He's after you. He hasn't given up. His heart of compassion is so rich towards you. We assume that when we're at our worst, he's at his most distant. When we're at our worst... He's come closer. When one of my children is really struggling and the other one's doing okay, which one am I closest to? That's our God. He comes to you in your worst moments. 
you think, oh, he must have given up on me. No, he couldn't be closer. He's a friend to sinners. We learn about Jonah. We've learned about God. What do we learn about the Gentile sailors? Well, the main thing we learn about the Gentile sailors is they're more righteous than Jonah. He's the servant of the Lord. He's the prophet. He's the one with the correct doctrine. He's the one that's experienced God firsthand before. The pagan, dirty sailors are more righteous than God's holy prophet. That's what we learn. In verse 12 and 13, they do all they can to spare Jonah's life and stop him being thrown into the sea. When, it, when it's clear that they have to throw him in, they cry out to God for mercy, verse 14, asking him not to hold them accountable for throwing this man overboard. In verse 16, after they've thrown him overboard and the sea has become calm, so the crisis is over for the sailors. What happens when the crisis is over for the sailors? Verse 16, look there, it says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows to him. So what does it teach us? It teaches that if you're a follower of Jesus and you're trying to reach the dirty world out there, the dirty world out there might just be more righteous than you. And that really hurts your proud heart. And it hurts mine. Someone in the workplace acts with more courage than you. Someone on your campus seems to have a greater kindness than you. One of your family members seems to have more emotional maturity and balance than you. You go, I'm the Jesus follower. <laughs> what can we learn? Well, I don't think Emily knew this, but Emily prayed. What, why is this? Because of the image of God. God's image is in all people, not just Christians. Those who profess no faith in God can show wonderful things like kindness, love, uh, high morality and so on and so forth. Why? Because God's image is in them. However much they've drifted from God's plan for their life, they've still got the image of God. And secondly, another doctrine is common grace. This is the idea that, as Jesus said, God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He provides and cares for all people, not just his covenant people. Saving grace is the grace God gives you so you can come into saving relationship with Christ Jesus. Because you're a sinner, you realize you're saved by grace and not through your works. And that's a wonderful moment of going, I'm God's child through faith. But common grace is for all people. The air we breathe, the bodies we have, the skills we hone, the passions that arise in us, the gifts and abilities and wisdom that we discover it within ourselves, common grace. We're going to think about this more next week, but one application we have to think and just remember is that when we are trying to reach our city, when we're called to the city, we may discover people that are more righteous than us in the way they live and think. And God's trying to get our heart and he's trying to get our attention when that happens. Do you remember the two most famous stories Jesus ever told? The story of the Good Samaritan. There's the dirty Samaritan, the half-breed, and he's left on the side of the road because of robbers, and then the priest, and the Levi walk by, and they're the pure ones, and they're God's people, and they've got the correct doctrine, and they walk by, and, and then who's there? Sorry, there was just a man, an anonymous man who was left. The Samaritan. It's the same with the sailors. The Samaritan is more righteous than God's people. Or the story of the prodigal sons, you have the dirty younger brother who goes off to the pagan city and he spends all the money and he has wild living and he has a crazy lifestyle and he certainly breaks all the boundaries that God might have given. But he finds his way home 
And he comes back, and what does he find? He finds a father who has more compassion than anyone could imagine, like the God we're learning about in the book of Jonah. And then there's the elder brother, who so resents two things. He resents the fact that his younger brother made a mess of it. But the thing he really resents is his compassionate father inviting the younger son back into the family. That's Jonah. He's the elder brother. He resents God's compassion to Nineveh as the elder brother resented the father's compassion to the younger son. In other words, God uses people we think we, we are better than to teach us about our hearts and it wounds our pride. It might be a non-Christian and God's trying to teach you through them about your selfishness. It might be someone in the church or your family or your circle of friends or you find irritating, you find annoying, you find you're hurt by, you disagree, you want to criticize them the whole time and God seems to have a plan to teach you through them and it's really, really annoying. And he's calling you to get close to that person and it hurts. What does it hurt? It hurts your pride. Like Jonah, you want nothing to do with it. You're running from God and you don't know. But he's put people in your path to show you how you're running from God. Before you can be sent to the city, you have to see how you're running from God. So let's apply all this and we'll finish by breaking wine in a moment. Breaking bread and taking wine. What does it mean to be God sent people to the city then? Some applications for you. To be God sent people, if you're saying, Lord, I want to be sent to the city or I don't want to be sent to the city, I'm like so scared of the city right now, I'm not sure how to engage, am I going to go? It's tough after COVID, isn't it? If you're not sorted, you're okay. God uses people that aren't sorted to reach the city. Jonah was far from sorted and God called him. And it means that as we go about our mission, to reach the city, we must have a humility about us as a church. Yes, God's called us, but we're not the answer to the city's problems. We might inflict a few of the problems ourselves as Jonah did. So let's, let's let the city teach you about your heart, about your inadequacy, and about your self-righteousness. I've come to the city 10 years ago, city of, I've learned about my heart, I've learned about my inadequacy, and I've learned about my self-righteousness. As we're called to go, see what God teaches you first. Secondly, let's therefore search our hearts as we go. Maybe we don't want to go. Maybe this whole sermon is going, oh, I don't want to go to the city. I just, whatever it is. Maybe I don't want to love that person or that type of person. God's not trying to judge you. He's not trying to make you feel bad. He just wants to reveal things. He says, hey, come to me with that. I want to change you. I want to give you my heart. So we have to be honest about the things that we find hard. And God calls us to the city. Once we're humble, God always gives grace to the humble. And please note, correct doctrine, past spiritual experience, usefulness in ministry, active church attendance and activities does not mean that God doesn't need to change your heart. It might mean he has to change your heart more. Before you can be sent to the city, discover where you're running from God. Third application, we're called to reach pagan sailors and religious Jonas. We're called to reach the older brother and the younger brother. We're called to reach the religious and the irreligious. We're called to reach the moral and the immoral. We're called to, lead the, uh, to, lead, to, to, to reach the conservative and the liberal, the legalists and the libertines, the Pharisees and the sinners. God wants us to reach all people. 
Let's not be like Jonah going, I can't engage with those kind of people. And let's not be like, uh, um, let's not be a Pharisee about Pharisees. Let's love all people and reach all people. Fourthly, (laughs) it's an obvious application. Stop running from God if you are. Are you? Where? What's God done in your heart in the last month, the last six months, during COVID, and you've sort of built up a a bit of a Jonah-like hardness in your heart over something or someone or or even the city? And you go, I just want to stop running. Or maybe you go, look, I used to follow Jesus passionately and I was so like I was sold out and it was pre-COVID or it was in my youth or in my student years or I've sort of just lost that passion and actually when I think about it, I probably am just drifting. I'm not running, but I'm not heading towards. Or maybe you go, no, no, I, I, I do love Jesus, but I'm not going to let him into this part of my life. But that means you're running from him. He has to have all of your life. You can't compartmentalize. You can't say, Jesus, you know, I'll have you. Like Jonah probably was like, hey, Jesus, I'll have you in Israel. It's great in Israel. We can, I'm not going over there. It's all of your life. It's every part of your life. Or maybe you're here today as someone that doesn't know Jesus. And if, I mean, we love it that you've come. We really do. I can't, I can't express how grateful we are that you choose to come and consider being with us this afternoon. Maybe God wants you to come to him. And be not just no common grace that God has gifted and blessed you in lots of ways, but saving grace, that you can know God for yourself through Jesus. If that's you, come and speak to me at the end. There's one application more. The true Jonah. 650 years later, another servant of the Lord would come. He wouldn't go from Israel to Nineveh. He'd go from heaven to earth because his heart was bursting with compassion. When he was asleep on a boat on Lake Galilee, a storm would come. His disciples in fear would run to him and say, don't you care? And he did care very much, even though it was stormy. And he would control the wind and the waves to show that he had control over all things. He was the king of the universe. And God would call this servant to love his enemies and to lay his life down for them. And in the moment that they were as savage as the Assyrians and they put him on what? A cross. Which I think was invented by the Persians, not the Assyrians. But it's a cruel form of torture. What did he cry out? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And why did Jesus do this? Because we're all his enemies and we were all running from him. And we were all the dirty sailors. And we were all the proud Jonas. That was us. And he wanted to be reconciled. And he wanted to have compassion. And he wanted to love us and draw him close to him. So he laid his life down for us to chase down our stubborn hearts. Jesus shows us that our God is a God who pursues every single one of us to the furthest lengths possible to bring us back, whether you're a dirty, Gentile, pagan, younger brother type person or you're a proud, stubborn, religious, racist type, elder brother type person. God loves everyone and wants you and he laid down his life for you. And that is the power that can come into your life, that love of God through Christ that means when you look at the city and you go, I'm not sure I'm... 
He says, let me change you with my love and I'll give you what you need to go out into the city. Will you stand? We're going to pray. I'll invite the band back and I'm going to hand over to Maffi to lead us in our time of communion, but I'm going to pray. And uh, let's just take a moment to consider what we've reflected on today. Hmm. Take a moment just to be still. How, God, how has God stirred your heart? Or where do you know you're running from him? Or where have you forgotten about that deep compassion he has for you and for this world? Father, we, we read the story of Jonah and the first thing we all want to do is separate ourselves from him and say, that's not me. And Lord, we just take a moment to say, that is us. We so often run from what you're calling us to do. We so often find it so hard to love those that are unlovable in our eyes. We so often want to stay in some form of control of our lives and keep our lives nice and easy and comfortable. And so, Lord, we take a moment to ask you to move in our hearts again, to bring change and transformation, and to assure us of that deep love you have for us that will melt our hearts to receive the call on our lives to be your people in this city. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that know they've, they've gone down the, the younger brother route and they're living lives that are sort of throwing away a, either your standards or your word or, or something, Lord, that you would draw them to you in your compassion. As we take bread and wine, may they be reminded of your great love for them and what you did for them to forgive them and draw them to yourself. I pray for my brothers and sisters and, and those of us that are more like Jonah in this moment in the story. There's a, proud, there's a pride in us. We, 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 we look down on others or we assume we're the sorted one and everyone else needs to fix themselves. Lord, would you assure us of your great compassion for us that might change our hearts too. And for all of us, Father, may we hear that call again to the city the city of Dublin, the people of Dublin, the Dublin in all its glory and wonder and beauty and the things we love and Dublin in all its darkness and hardness and challenge. May we not be found to be running, but facing it because we've encountered you today. So we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word and we pray as we take bread and wine, you continue to meet with us and change us and then send us out, Lord. Amen.